Hebrews seven twenty six through 28. It was fitting for us. It was fitting for us. All right, we're going to get started here in a moment, but it's fitting for us to begin with another word of prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, it is fitting for us to acknowledge your grace and your glory, to thank you for this time together this morning. It is fitting for us to recognize that everything we do must be done in the filling and power of God the Holy Spirit. It must be done in occupation with Christ, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I thank you, Father, for the truth of your word, where once again it is fitting for us to assemble together and receive instruction, rightly dividing the word of truth. These things are fitting. And our Savior likewise endured what was fitting. It was fitting for Him to suffer. It was fitting for Him to identify with our weaknesses so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. It is fitting for us to have such a high priest And so, Father, I pray that you would open our eyes today to understand that we quit trying to be legalists, that we quit trying to be Old Testament priests. Father, it's fitting for us in grace to have a high priest such as our Savior seated at your right hand. These things are fitting. And we want to study this and learn this truth today. So bless our time of study. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Really, um... We've seen through this chapter so far all the reasons why uh, his priesthood is so superior to Levi and the Levitical priesthood, superior to Aaron, the great high priest of the tribe of Levi and all of Aaron's descendants. And of many things, of course, uh, coming with respect to the tithes, the chapter begins to highlight the fact that Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek. If uh, if you want really want to boil it down to that, Levi was in the loins of Abraham two generations removed, and yet he paid tithes when Abraham paid tithes. And so the, there's a lot of uh, impact of this chapter. Uh, those priests keep dying, uh, Jesus not. And that's uh, where we've kind of brought it down now to verse uh, 23. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. You know, uh, death does tend to limit the ministry you can have afterwards. And so Aaron was done being the high priest when he died. And then Eliezer became high priest. But then he died. And then his son became high priest. And then he died. And so we have this succession of, of great high priests, or mostly great high priests. And they kept dying, as it were. Jesus, on the other hand, abides forever. And verse 24 highlights this, because Jesus, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. And I don't like the word continues. To me, that continues is like, you know, holding on by the skin of his teeth or just kind of, you know, holding on like Ruth Bader Ginsburg or somebody that just, you know, isn't dead yet. So they still have their, they still have their title. Jesus, though, abides He is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, and He is just as alive as ever. 
He abides forever. And it's the same imperative we have when we're commanded to abide in Christ, to abide in the vine and bear much fruit. It's very much a living and active uh, operation. So I, I like abide better than continues. He abides forever. He holds his priesthood permanently, not as an empty title, but as an active expression of the will of God the Father. And so it is, uh, therefore, he is able also to save forever, to save to the uttermost. In fact, the doctrine of eternal security is inseparable from the Melchizedek priesthood of Jesus Christ, that it is, it is the guarantee of our eternal security, that we cannot lose our salvation. The idea of losing our salvation means he has to lose his priesthood or he has to disobey the Father, and that just doesn't happen. And so we can appreciate that. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The present priestly ministry of Jesus Christ is an intercessory prayer ministry on our behalf. That's why we stress prayer. That's why we have corporate prayer meetings. That's why we have the blessings of being able to bear one another's burdens, and we do so in prayer. And so all of this. Then the conclusion then, it is fitting. It it was fitting for us, not for them, but for us, to have such a high priest. They had their high priests, plural. We have our high priest, the one and only. The one and only Jesus Christ with the once and for all sacrifice at the cross. So they had theirs, we have ours. Big difference. It was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. It's a five-fold hymn right there celebrating the glory of Jesus Christ in his priesthood who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins, because he didn't have any, Jesus is sinless, and then for the sins of the people. And again, we don't have any in this way. Judicially, they're taken away. All right? So he doesn't have to offer up daily sin offerings. He offered up one and for all sacrifice on Calvary. This he did once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. This is the glory of Jesus Christ and his priesthood and the glory of you and me and our priesthood. We are sons. We are being made perfect. Even as he was perfected, we are being perfected. He is the high priest. We too are priests according to the order of Melchizedek. He entered within the veil as a forerunner. We enter within the veil. And that's the, the blessing we have in our priesthood today. And so that's how the chapter comes to an end and then launches chapter 8. And in case you miss it, the author is very patient and recaps everything in chapter 8 and verse 1 where he says, the main point in what has been said is this, okay? Let's boil down seven chapters of Hebrews to this reality. We have such a high priest. That's the point. Hebrews is to spotlight the high priest, and that's what we have. And having such a high priest we employ that high priest. We're on board with that high priest. We're right in there with him, within the veil, praying with him, worshiping with him. All the aspects of our priesthood are in Christ within the veil. And that's what we'll see in chapters 8, 9, and 10, how our priesthood moves forward in, uh, in this way. All right, and so I want to advance to... I forgot what slide I want to advance to. It'll be near the bottom because it's at the end of the chapter. How about that one?
All right. In verses 26 and 27. It was fitting. It's interesting as we start this, we are in contrast with they. We are in contrast with those guys. Our high priest is so much greater than all of their high priests put together. We have such a high priest in contrast to all the high priests they had under the law. And so it is fitting for us to have such a high priest. Given the fact that we are a heavenly people, why would we have an earthly high priest? We are a heavenly people. Our citizenship is in heaven. And so it's fitting, right, proper, appropriate, suited for us to have such a high priest. And uh, this becomes the impact of, of what we're looking at here, of what's uh, us versus them, and why the church is not Israel, and why the New Testament is not the Old Testament, and why in grace we have the fulfillment of law in Christ, walking in Christ. See, not that we become law keepers, but the requirements of the law are fulfilled in Christ. So we walk in Christ, and then in grace we can relax about law. And these are the principles that we see here. Really, verse 26 recaps uh, what we've already referenced in verse 19 and in verse 25, how impotent was the law. Law could make nothing perfect. and It wasn't designed to. We see in verse 19, well, verse 18 even, it's called weak and useless. Uh, I know I feel that way sometimes, but this is not me. This is law, weak and useless. On the one hand, there's a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And please understand that it was never designed to. This was the designed obsolescence. This was, on, this was God's intent. This was not a shortcoming. God did not give law to perfect everybody and then, you know, got disappointed when they failed and then said, oh, well, hmm, I guess I'll try a plan B. Let me, let me switch to grace now and see if that works, okay? God is not experimenting in, in a way that your car mechanic does when he's just swapping out parts trying to figure out which is the one that's broken, all right? God knows that law is not uh, the thing that's this, his eternal plan for perfecting humanity. It's grace, all right? So it's planned obsolescence. The law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. So try to draw near to God through law, it'll never work. But draw near to God in grace, and there's the better hope. There's what we have in Christ. Likewise, verse 25 speaks about this. He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him. And so not only is it better, it's eternal. It's forever. It's eternally secure. You can't lose it the position that we have in Christ. And so it's fitting. These are the contrasts that we've seen repeatedly, constantly. We've seen Jesus is better than, better than the angels, better than the uh, Moses, better than all these previous things. In fact, this is the contrast that starts the book. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, who did he speak to? Them, those guys, the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, or in the last of these days, he has spoken to whom? To us. So you see, right at the very beginning, there's those guys, and then there's us. Okay, And that's a contrast that gets drawn over and over. And if you're tempted to repeat the mistakes that those guys made over and over again, well then we're without excuse, because we've got the examples of those guys. We've got two canons of Scripture, a Hebrew and Greek canon, to uh, leave us without excuse. We need to uh, we need to be not those guys, but us. 
We need to be saved by grace and walking by grace and functioning as the royal family of God in the heavenly places in Christ. In chapter 3, we had this contrast, you might remember. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest, not of their confession, of our confession. But we have a something so much greater than what they had, okay? So much so that really the glory we have makes the glory they have seem like it's not even glory. That glory fades compared to this glory that we have in our eternal position in Christ. He is the apostle and high priest of our confession. They had a high priest. They didn't have an apostle and high priest. We do. We have the apostle and high priest of our confession. Verse 6 as well of chapter 3. Christ was faithful as a son over his house. Moses was faithful as a servant. Christ was faithful as a son. That's a contrast. Likewise, whose house we are, not them. They weren't the house. We are the house. We are the house as we abide in Christ and function in our Melchizedek priesthood. Verse 19 of chapter 3. So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. The whole point in learning from them is so that we don't copy them. (laughs) We want to not make their mistakes. Because what they did angered the Lord. What they did caused him to swear in his wrath that they would not enter into his rest. And so we need to learn from where they did not. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Therefore let us fear. And uh, talks about the promise remaining of entering his rest. Unlike them, they never got to enter a rest. They died in the wilderness, but we still have the promise. Indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. See all these we and they contrasts. But the word they heard did not profit them. Why not? What was wrong with the word? Did they get defective prophecies? Did they have uh, inferior? No. It was alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. The Word of God always is. But they did not unite it by faith. They did not accept it with faith. We need to. It was not united by faith in those who heard. Still in chapter 4, we got verses 14 through 16. They and we, guess what? We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. They never had anything like that. They had a great high priest who passed within a, a, a replica veil. And he went in within the replica veil one day a year uh, with blood not his own. And then he came back out of the replica veil and uh, put his priestly garments back on again. By the way, I recommend 6 o'clock tonight because Eliezer's got a wonderful class ready to go on the tabernacle. And if you want to learn about the tabernacle and the the outer holy place and the holy of holies and the veil and all this stuff, 6 o'clock right here is where you need to be because Eliezer's got some amazing notes and he's ready to teach it at the six o'clock hour. But we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Wow, that's different. That's better. That's awesome. And that's fitting for us as a heavenly people. Let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. I don't care what test you're going through right now, Jesus intercedes and he understands. Even if your pastor doesn't, he's clueless. Your husband doesn't, he's double clueless. Whatever the case may be, Jesus understands. And he sympathizes and he prays. Therefore, let us draw near with, let us, let us. Not them, they couldn't do it. 
For them, only one guy one day a year. For us, all of us, all day, every day. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. That guy went to a mercy seat. We go to a throne of grace because Jesus is our mercy seat. So much power in this. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So really, these are, these are marvelous contrasts of not only Jesus and his priesthood as opposed to Aaron and the Levitical priesthood. There's also marvelous contrast between Israel and the church so that we can clear up the confusion there when people try to blend them or say that, well, you know, Israel was just the Old Testament church or the church is just New Testament Israel. Nothing could be further from the truth. And uh, the priesthood study is a marvelous study to help nail that down. Israel had a priesthood. The church is a priesthood. Hello, let's keep things simple. That was uh, Schaefer's greatest, uh, in my, well, he had a lot of great things, but Schaefer in his distinctions between Israel and the church said, said exactly that. Israel had a priesthood. The church is a priesthood. And uh, here we are. Chapter 6, verses 18 through 20. More us and them. But two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Remember, God can't lie, but He takes Himself under an oath anyway. And so we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Not set before them, set before us. We're the ones that are born again into a living hope. This hope we have, they didn't, we do, as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. This, was, this is for us, not for them. Where Jesus entered as a forerunner, not for them, for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so this is what we're dealing with. The contrasts have been made previously and they will continue to be made subsequently. Uh, so one of these times we're going to figure it out, right? <laughs> we're going to figure it out that we are not Israel and that our priesthood is so much greater. It's going to come back again in chapter 10 and chapter 13. So here's a preview of what we got coming up in chapter 10. The law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very substance of things, can never, by the same sacrifice in which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. When you, when you draw near to God under a law, it's a reminder of your sin, and next year you get that reminder all over again. It never perfects anyone. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins? Now that was not true for them, but it is a reality for us positionally in Christ. I am no longer a sinner in Christ. I am righteous. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. Okay, For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So in Hebrews 10, 1-4, we've got the contrast. What about us? Well, verse 10. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all. And I love that. That's why the Roman Mass is such a blasphemy. That's why when they, here they go again, re-sacrificing Christ again and again and again. That's why they constantly put him up on a cross and all their iconography and all the crucifixions everywhere. You get Jesus on a cross. He's either a baby in his mother's arms or he's hanging on a cross. Any Catholic venue you're looking at. No. Once and for all, we're not going to sacrifice him over and over and over again. Once and for all. 
verse 18 of chapter 10, where there is forgiveness of these things, there no longer any offering for sin. The, the Aaronic priesthood had to never let the fire go out on the altar. He had an evening sacrifice, a morning sacrifice every single day for his sins and for the sins of the people. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus offered himself once at the consummation of the ages. And that's what we're dealing with here in Hebrews 7. Even over to chapter 13 at the end of the book, more contrasts. Do not be car- verse 9 of chapter 13 says, Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. Again, there's us and then there's those guys. And those guys had all kinds of dietary restrictions in their shadow uh, priesthood, in their shadow theology. We don't. We have an altar from which those who serve at the tabernacle had no right to eat. Think about our position in Christ and the altar we eat from, the altar we worship at. This is us as opposed to them. All right, so that's what we're dealing with. We have such a high priest in contrast to all those other high priests that they had. Jesus' fivefold sanctification reality is our fivefold mandate. Jesus' fivefold sanctification reality is our fivefold mandate. I'm going to give you some scriptures as we look at this, but when you read these verses, why is he so great? What is so fitting? What is so appropriate? Keep in mind, fitting. The verb is prepo, there's a cognate adjective and noun and whatnot, but the idea of fitting and appropriate, that means it's suited to the situation, it's suited to the, the place, the person, the thing, okay? And, and I think we all get that because I think everyone here, it's common human experience, we've all said the wrong thing at the wrong time at the wrong place, right? And then we're like, uh, and you want to take it back, but you can't because the word's out there and like, oh, totally inappropriate, and then, then you apologize and grovel and whatever. You call your wife a lizard on, her, on your first date. And uh, she's not your wife yet, but after you call her a lizard on the first date, you start to suspect that she never will be your wife and there won't even be a second date. Okay, So you say something thoughtless. But then you try to say something fitting and appropriate. Proper. So what, what is fitting and appropriate? And so all these things, holy, innocent, undefiled, these five descriptions... They describe what he is as our high priest, but it also describes what we should be in our Christian walk. So he is holy, we should be holy. He is uh, innocent, we are to walk in innocence as we are innocent as doves, yet shrewd as serpents. Undefiled, we are to keep ourselves undefiled. Separated from sinners, we're commanded to come out from among them and be ye separate. Uh, Exalted above the heavens. And I know there's days we don't feel very exalted, but we are seated at the right hand of Jesus Christ, even as he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And so we need to operate on, uh, on an exalted basis, positionally and experientially in the outworking of our Christian walk. And so this is what we see here. You want verses on all these? Okay. I'm glad you asked. Because Jesus is holy, we can lift up holy hands in prayer. And this is an unusual term. This isn't hagios. It's not the normal term we would expect for holy. It is very particular, I think, in this use. But it's used here also in 1 Timothy 2.8. And this holiness, uh, holy, innocent, undefiled, 
separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. And this is the basis by which we lift up. So He is holy, we have these holy hands, and we go to Him in prayer. It's fitting, it's proper, it's appropriate. In other words, it corresponds with the circumstances. 1 Timothy 2.8. We illustrated that this morning, in fact. We had men in prayer. And it's, uh, it is curious to me because it's not anthropos, humanity in general. It is the, the masculine male gender in a Bible that's not confused over who's boys and who's girls. This is, uh, there are men and there are women in the plan of God. And he says, um, therefore I want the men, the fathers, the husbands, the adult males. It's not anthropos. It's the male gender. I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands. And that's our term that describes our holy high priest in, uh, in Hebrews 7. Lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. What's the best way to resolve those issues? We saw last hour with Yodi and Sinechi. Get like-minded with Jesus Christ. Go to the Father in prayer. You know, just put your fight on hold and resume that when you're done praying. How about that? <laughs> All right, and see if it works. But just go to the Father in prayer. And you go and your brother goes and you're lifting up these holy hands. does marvelous things for your Christian unity. Lifting up holy hands without wrath or dissension. Because Jesus is innocent, we can serve Him with a clear conscience. Now the term innocence here and the idea with respect to, we're not Adam and Eve without knowledge of good and evil. We're not in, in the pure innocence of, of uh, Eden. Well, our eyes are open. We're in the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. We, uh, we can be uh, innocent as doves while we are still shrewd as serpents. That's very important. And so it's not the innocence of ignorance, but it is the innocence of holiness. It is the innocence of a pure conscience before the Lord. Because Jesus is innocent, we can serve Him with a clear conscience. And we should. This is what it's about. The goal of our instruction. What does it say in 1 Timothy 1? The uh, goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. This describes His priesthood. This describes us in our priesthood as we walk with Him in our Christian walk. The clear conscience. Verse 19 of the same chapter. Let's see, backing up to verse 18, 1 Timothy 1.18. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. And I wonder, how, how frequently are the shipwrecks, are they based on faith or are they based on conscience or both? Which, uh, which is the bigger stumbling block on that? Anyway, they're both in view in that verse. Walking by faith and keeping the clear conscience. Serving the Lord. By the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I do what I do. And, uh, you know, the failures along the way, fine. We confess them. We freely admit them. We move on. I'm not going to hide anything. I'm not going to act like uh, it didn't happen. Let's just uh, show some grace and keep moving related to that. First uh, Timothy three and verse nine. One of the part of the qualifications. You've got overseers. You've got deacons. You've got the uh, criteria here for service. And one of the things for deacons, anyway, as it says, holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. 
If you don't have a clear conscience in your Christian walk, then you don't need to be a deacon at the moment. Just you know, step aside and, and grow some and get back to the point where you can serve with a clear conscience. It's one of the requirements there. We have it coming up uh, in some upcoming chapters here in Hebrews, this clear conscience in chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 13. So we haven't gotten there yet, but keep in mind when we, get, when we do get there that it's all grounded in our, our, the high priesthood ministry of our Savior, that He Himself is holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted in the heavens. And on that basis then, we can proceed in our priesthood here on earth uh, emulating these five characteristics. Hebrews 9.14, by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. That's us. Saved by grace through faith. Thank you, Lord. And so here we are, equipped and suited to serve in the heavenly priesthood that he leads us in. Chapter 10 and verse 22, let us draw near with sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We're going to have communion today and there's warnings about partaking in an unworthy manner. Well, guess what? Confess your sins, be restored to fellowship, and you are as worthy as as anyone because in Christ our worthiness is, is His. It is Christ's righteousness. We partake in a worthy manner because He makes us to be worthy. And it's our blessing and delight to do so. And uh, so we don't enter with fear and trepidation. We don't enter with a, with a rope tied around our ankle so if we drop dead before the Shekinah glory, they can pull out our corpse and bury it somewhere, right? We are, we are, we belong. We are in Christ. We have the very righteousness that Christ has. And uh, this is fitting, appropriate, suitable for our heavenly priesthood in Christ. 13.18 is the final use on this. Hebrews 13.18 Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. So that's how he wraps up his exhortation there. Wanting to continue to serve with that clear conscience. You know, when you stand before the Lord... Uh, at the judgment seat of Christ, how confident are you going to be? Well, makes a difference if here and now you have the clear conscience here and now, so you're not sweating it when we get there. The clear conscience here and now when I'm standing there, hey, it is what it is. Thank you, Lord. It's all grace. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, undefiled, because Jesus is undefiled, we can serve others in such a way. And what I like the fact for all of these, all of these reflect his present priestly ministry, even though none of them were true during the hours of darkness. He was defiled on the cross. He was not innocent on the cross. He was guilty. He was not holy on the cross. He was condemned. He submitted to these things for the work of the cross and then in picking up his life again, all of these truths shine forth forever. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Because Jesus is undefiled, we can serve others in such a way. We function in our undefiled circumstances. And you say, well, pastor, I, I feel pretty defiled a lot of days, a lot of times. Well, yeah, we all do. 
but we keep ourselves undefiled. We confess, we get cleansed, we keep the short accounts, we walk in righteousness, not because we deserve it, but because He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Keep yourself undefiled, keep yourselves from idols. This is what we're commanded to do. And really, this is how James put it, pure and undefiled religion is this. In James 1.27, right here in the neighborhood, right after Hebrews comes James. Pure and undefiled religion. But keep in mind though, it's not, it's not you. Back up to verse 26 and realize it's not you. It's the grace of God. Anyway, if you think, if you think one thing, you can be deceiving yourself. In which case your religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion is in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, to keep oneself unstained by the world. So do you want to function in an unstained priesthood or in an undefiled priesthood? Well then, have your mind renewed. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can do this. It's the only way. If you don't have your thinking transformed, you will be conformed to this world. That's guaranteed. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. But because Jesus is undefiled, we can serve others in such a way with a pure and undefiled religion. And this comes down to the, to the things we do. Serving widows in their distress and taking meals places and giving people rides and all the other things we do. You know what? Unbelievers can do those things too. But we do them in fellowship under the filling of the Holy Spirit with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, fixing our eyes on Jesus in the will of God the Father makes all the difference in the world. When we do it, it's a sweet-smelling savor before the Father because it's the right thing done in the right way for the right reasons. Now, if you want to go ahead and do all those things like a legalist, out of fellowship, all carnal, mad at everything, stomping your feet because why is it always me that has to do this all the time? Well, you still can do the deed, but you're going to watch the wood, hand, stubble get burned up at the judgment seat of Christ because that's not sanctified. That's not the precious stones that the Father has called for you to do. The right thing done in the wrong way is wrong. So if you're out of fellowship, it's not the sweet-smelling savor. It's not holy, innocent, undefiled. Separated from sinners. Jesus is separated from sinners. Now this is His position now seated at the right hand of the Father. This is after the death, burial, resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. This is His reality now. While He was on earth, of course, He was not separated from sinners. He ate with sinners. He talked to sinners. He was touching dead bodies. He was touching uh, you know, unclean women, this woman with the hemorrhage. and I mean, He would be touching uh, unclean people, bringing them back from the dead. Imagine, uh, and well, it's clear. The, the, the Bible makes clear that the Pharisees were horrified at how ceremonially filthy Jesus was most of the time. At how uh, ceremonially, because he, he wasn't playing their Pharisee games, and his disciples weren't either. And so the sinful woman's wiping his feet with her hair, and the Pharisees are all aghast. Well, in his first advent, he identified with the sinners. And he went to the cross to take our place. It is now in session. It is now at the Father's right hand that he's separated from sinners. And I want you and me to make the same application ourselves. Let's not get to the point that we are so separated from sinners in our priesthood that we don't know any sinners in our ambassadorship. Right? We can't be so separated from sinners that we don't know any unbelievers. 
They were never given the gospel. They were never in places where those kind of people can be found because they need the gospel. And they need, uh, we, we have to know sinners to reach them. Okay, so keep in mind, what we're looking at here is our priestly function, not our ambassadorial function, not our soldier function in Christ. There will be plenty of unbelievers around in our ambassadorial function, plenty of unbelievers around in our soldier function, but not one unbeliever in our, or even carnal believer in our priestly function. No unbeliever can be a member of Austin Bible Church. Because this is a priestly function for the born again in Christ. And as far as our priestly service is concerned in our prayers, how, what like-mindedness is there? What harmony? What, what concord? What fellowship hath Christ with Belial? Have the believer in common with the unbeliever? None. None. So because Jesus is separated from sinners, our priestly service must also be separated from sinners. And that becomes significant, all right? And so uh, it's curious to me. 1 Corinthians 6 and 2 Corinthians 6 both address this. And I get them mixed up because I'm dyslexic that way, but 1 and 2, you know, they're both Corinthians and they're both chapter 6. So perhaps I may be excused for conflating these. Let's read 1st, 1st, and then 2nd, 2nd. 1 Corinthians 6, the idea of separation, in particular, we were in the early part of the chapter last hour because it's the chapter that tells us don't take your brother to court, don't sue your brother, don't sue your sister, don't, take a, don't stand before an, an earthly judge and think that you can resolve your church issues with a secular lawsuit. And then past that, though, it talks about uh, these issues of separation why not rather be wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? And uh, see, I think I'm mixing these up again. Look at me now. Um, we are to be separated. We are to be separated. Come up from among them and be ye separate. And look at that. I think I got the wrong passage there. All right, well, let's look at Second Corinthians. 6, verses 14 through 18. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? And so think, think about this in our priestly service with Jesus Christ, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners. If we're going to function in this Melchizedek priesthood, we have to keep ourselves holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners. If we fail in any of these components, our Melchizedek priesthood is impacted. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Remember whose house we are if we are the temple of the living God. And so it says, therefore, come out from among their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean. I will welcome you. And so there very much is an us versus them contrast in that chapter. All right. I think the um, 
Yeah, I'm not sure what uh, verse I was looking at in the other one. I think remove the wicked man from among yourself. I think uh, what he says, maybe it was chapter 5. Yeah, it was chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 7 through 13. That's a lot better than chapter 6. And so now my dyslexia is even less understandable. Since it's chapter 5 in 1 Corinthians and it's chapter 6 in 2 Corinthians. I'm going to learn this one of these days. In 1 Corinthians 5 it says, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened. You are unleavened. If you're in Christ, you're unleavened. He took your sin. So let us celebrate. He says in verse 9, he says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with fornicators. Immoral people, if you want to use the PG version, the New American Standard. It's uh, it's fornicators. Don't associate with fornicators. I did not mean with all the fornicators of the world or with the covetous or swindlers or idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. I mean, seriously, what are you going to do? Leave planet Earth? They're everywhere. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. Here we go. If he names the name of Christ but still lives like an unbeliever, that's a problem. If you want to be holy, innocent, separated from sinners, it includes that guy. Okay? I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So the separation is from our church life and our worship and our prayers and our fellowship because there's no harmony anyway. And then beyond all that, secular social life when it says not even to eat with such a one. Say, you know what? For for my priestly sake, for my priesthood's sake, you know, uh, this is what I'm doing. I'm separating because my Savior is holy, undefiled, innocent, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. And I have to keep myself that way too. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? Here's sanctified judging. Judge those who are within the church. And that's... uh, good verse to keep in mind the next time the idiot wants to smack you upside the head with judge not lest you be judged and they think it's the only Bible verse they know and they think that it uh, it's their trump card to make you go away. Judge those who are within the church. How about that? Those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Why? Because we have a holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners high priest. That's the apostle and high priest of our confession. Finally, exalted above the heavens, so too. Because Jesus is exalted above the heavens, we too are seated at the right hand of God the Father. We too are seated at the right hand of God the Father. And we need to make that our reality, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Because we've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. This is the essence of our priesthood. It's heavenly. We are a heavenly people in a heavenly priesthood. We don't have an earthly replica on this earth anymore. The Jews would love to build another one, but there's a mosque sitting on the Temple Mount. And so, uh, you know, there's a day coming that they're going to get to do that. It just hasn't happened yet. And uh, look out when they do, because that's the place Antichrist is going to defile. And uh, look forward to that happening too. That just gets us one day closer. All right. But we are seated at the right hand of the Father. Ephesians 2 6. Ephesians 2 6. 
See, we used to be dead, but now we're alive in Christ. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. No dead people can walk. They just walk according to the course of this world. They're spiritually dead while physically alive. And we too used to walk like that. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest, but no more. We're now saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We have a new nature. We have a new mandate. For God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And more than that, you say, isn't that enough? That's great. I want to be saved. Yes. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him, seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is our reality in the body of Christ. That was not the Levitical priesthood. That was not Aaron or the high priest. That was not the Jewish stewardship. Everybody that got saved in the Old Testament, were great heroes in the Old Testament, Noah and Daniel and Job and David, some great heroes, Moses, men of whom the world was not worthy, none of them were seated at the Father's right hand because none of them were baptized in union with Christ. Christ himself was not victoriously seated. That can't happen until the cross. He receives a greater glory because of the cross. And when he sits at the Father's right hand, you remember he asked the Father, give me back the glory I had with you before the world was? The Father said, oh, you're getting that back and you're getting more. You're getting a greater glory than you've ever had before because you're the Lamb of God having taken away the sin of the world. He uh, manifests the greatest humility ever. He receives the greatest exaltation ever to an infinite degree. And that's our position in Christ. And so these are the things we have here. So raised us up, seated us with him so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The church age is just the warm-up It's the opening act. It gets us ready for the fullness of time. It gets us ready for eternity in the ages to come. Tribulation, millennium, fullness of time. And all eternity after that. So, the fivefold sanctification reality is our fivefold mandate. When we read in Hebrews 7 that we have such a high priest, we have that that it was fitting for us to have such a high priest. What other kind of high priest could we possibly have? None. It's inconceivable to have any other kind of high priest than the one he gave us, Jesus Christ, in his uh, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, priesthood. That's his high priesthood, that's our priesthood. Who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. That was, that's not his operation. That was their operation. All shadow doctrine anticipating his substance. He doesn't have to replicate all those shadows because this he did once and for all when he offered up himself. Our priesthood does not require annual atonement offerings or daily sin offerings. Our priesthood does not require annual atonement offerings or daily sin offerings. We want to be clear on that. And uh, it gets introduced here 
He does not need daily to do this like they did. It's going to get expanded in chapter 9. It's going to get expanded in chapter 10. Now we do have daily offerings. Don't get me wrong. We do, through Jesus, we offer up uh, sacrifices that are well-pleasing to the Father, spiritual sacrifices in the heavenly places in Christ. And they are not reminders of sin. If you think about it, God the Father judged all that on Christ. He's cast it behind His back. He's sealed it up in a bag. He's tossed it behind His back. As far as the east is from the west, it plunges into the depths of the sea. God doesn't want to be reminded of all that ever again. Our priesthood is not a constant reminder of sin. When he returns a second time, it will be without reference to sin. He dealt with that in his first advent. And so we do have, I believe, we do have a daily priesthood, day after day as long as it's called a day. We have a non-stop priesthood even as we have a non-stop Sabbath rest. It's all day, every day in Christ. But the, the priestly ministry we have and the sacrifices we offer are not daily sin offerings. They're not annual Day of Atonement offerings. Jesus covered all of that on Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD. Three hours of darkness on the cross. Shadow anticipation. Shadow anticipation of the cross required continuous reminders. Day by day, year by year, generation by generation, High priest after high priest after high priest. And even, uh, we talked about a couple weeks ago, there was a benefit when the high priest died, actually. At the death of the high priest, everybody that had fled for refuge to a city of refuge, they got, a, they got their, their reset, their reboot at that point. They could leave their city of refuge and return to their, to their tribe, to their land grant, to their heritage. And, and uh, they were you know, freed from the, the threat of kinsman redeemer after that. Um, so there was a benefit in the Old Testament to having the death of the high priest. But day after day, year after year, generation after generation, high priest after high priest, constant reminders of sin. Of a holy nation in the midst of Gentile nations trying to be holy before the Lord their God and failing with a with shadow doctrine of Messiah is coming. Messiah is coming the one who cannot fail, the one who will not fail, Messiah is coming. And so all of that anticipation is fulfilled in Christ. The whole burnt offering, the, the sin offering, the trespass offering, the peace offering, the, the wave offering, the red heifer offering. Am I missing? There's, there's more. Okay. Not to get all Levitical. I don't have to get Levitical. We're, we got Hebrews. We're Melchizedek priests in Christ. We've got the book of Hebrews. Shadow anticipation of the cross required continuous reminders, but substantive expression of the cross has no such need. You and I don't have a shadow anticipation. You and I have a substantive expression. And we're going to go to the communion table here in a moment, and that is a substantive expression in remembrance of what he did and in anticipation of what is to come. We proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. We don't have a shadow anticipation of the cross. We have the substantive expression. Remember Christ, the, the, the shadows and the substance. Moses in the law was the shadows. Jesus is the substance. We walk by faith. That's the substance. All right. We have no such need. 
And in fact, this is why then the priestly ministry continues to be effect. This is how in First John it says, the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, keeps on cleansing us from all sin. So we don't need to confess when we're in fellowship. This is the blood that keeps us in fellowship when we're walking in the light. Now, if we sin, okay, we got First John 1, 9, but let's not go to 1, 9. Let's stay with 1, 7. Let's stay in fellowship and not even commit that sin. Let's stay in the light and not and just keep accepting the ongoing cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. I'm going to close with this. Um, read those during the week, if you would, chapter 7, chapter 9, chapter 10. But as we go to the Lord's table here in a moment, 1 John 1, 7 through 9. And um, the doctrine of rebound, if you have a BRCA background or know what I'm talking about there, or the confession of sin, the more generic expression. And that's verse 9, and I, and I love that. I'm thankful for that. We all can use that. How many times a day we need to? There it is. If we confess our sins, personal sins, the things we do that make us go carnal, He is faithful and righteous or just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that's the remedial action. That's the first aid when we're, when we're spiritually bleeding, if you will. All right? Because we're in darkness. We need to be restored. But verse 7, if we use verse 7 appropriately, we'll never go carnal ever again. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light. So resist the temptation. Reject the sin. Keep your eyes fixed on the Lord. Stay filled with the Spirit. If you walk by the Spirit, you cannot fulfill the lust of the flesh. It's impossible. If we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son keeps on. This is continuous action in present time. The blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. We don't need a high priest to offer up sins for, uh, sacrifices for Himself and then for the people. We have the once and for all work of Jesus Christ at Calvary, and it does this. It cleanses us as we walk in the light. Walking in the light is cleansing. And so there it is. Father, I thank you for this morning, and I thank you for the book of Hebrews. And uh, Father, it just seems sometimes like we ought to go back and (laughs) teach the whole thing of Leviticus, but it, it all gets unfolded here in Hebrews in such a powerful way. Thank you for the shadows that point to Christ, but thank you for the substance that is Christ. And thank you for the substance that is us, baptized in the union with Christ. I thank you, Father, that the very moment we believe, the very moment we believe in Christ and receive eternal life, we are sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. That that baptism of the Holy Spirit identifies us with His death, with His burial, with His resurrection, with His ascension, and with His session. And even as He is now seated in the heavenly places, even as now He is holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, I pray, Father, that we identify ourselves positionally in Him with these same five characteristics operating in our priesthood day by day, moment by moment. They could never let the fire in their altar go out, Father. I pray we live that in our own pattern, that we don't let the fire of our altar ever go out, that we keep, uh, we keep our eyes fixed where they need to be on the author and high priest of our, the apostle and high priest of our confession, the author and perfecter of our faith. And I do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.